Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey everyone, welcome back to Failed Utopia. On this episode, the fascinating story of Biosphere 2, the largest closed ecological system ever created, or how eight people went nuts and almost starved in a vivarium for humans. Biosphere 2 is a massive enclosed Earth Systems science research facility in Oracle, Arizona. That's in the American Southwest near Tucson. Biosphere 2 was first conceived of in 1984 by a couple of guys who met, where else, at an alternative community called Synergia Ranch. This community was co-founded in 1969 by John Allen, a systems ecologist slash beat poet slash metallurgist slash founder of freeform performance group, The Theater of All Possibilities. He was really into Buckminster Fuller's concept of synergy, as indicated by the name, and also Fuller's Spaceship Earth, basically the idea that we're all passengers on planet Earth, and to keep the ship running smoothly, we all have to work together like a crew. Uh, talk about a failed utopia. <laughs> but anyway, John Allen also wanted Synergia Ranch to serve basically as an eco-village where they could experiment with biospheres as potential refuges in case of ecological disaster, like a nuclear winter, for example. The synergists, as they called themselves, were also really into William S. Burroughs, renowned postmodern author, and guy who murdered his common-law wife in Mexico and got away with it. Burroughs was warning of a countdown to ecological doom by this point in life, and the synergists believed that humanity was headed for complete destruction of our environment, and therefore biospheres were the future. Like so many things, sounds crazy, but turned out to be prescient. So it was actually a pretty cool idea, and that's what billionaire businessman Ed Bass thought. He spent lots of time hanging out at the ranch in the 70s, and he and John Allen eventually launched Biosphere 2 together, along with some of the other Synergia Ranch members. Side note, Synergia Ranch still exists today, with some of the same members from 50 years ago. It's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it operates as a quote-unquote center for innovation and retreats and an organic farm. I don't know much about it, although when I googled it, the first suggestion from the algorithm as I typed was Synergia Ranch Cult. <laughs> I really don't think it's a cult at all or has ever been. Though, as I said, I just found out about it, and I've never been there, so as ever, take my opinion with a huge grain of salt. Looking at the pictures of the ranch online, it does look very 
Baki, as in the central point of the community, is a big geodesic dome. If I ever go back to Santa Fe, I'll try to go there and look around because it actually looks pretty cool to me. There's a documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Spaceship Earth, and it's about Biosphere 2, but they spend the first half hour or so doing a pretty deep dive on Synergia Ranch. Back in the 70s and 80s, the synergists were pretty uh, avant-garde, you might say. There's a bunch of great old footage of them doing all sorts of stuff, including, I think, theater exercises, uh, flailing and flopping around, pushing each other, screaming. Uh, I, I don't even know. But if you want to feast your eyes on that and a ton of other footage of the synergists and Biosphere 2, plus recent interviews with some of the people involved, Spaceship Earth is streaming on Hulu and Amazon and a bunch of other places. So you can check that out if you have two hours and nothing to do. So all that's to say that that community was the jumping off point for the Biosphere 2 project. Construction on the Biosphere went on from 1987 to 1991, and the $150 million price tag was largely funded by the company Space Biospheres Ventures, which Ed Bass was chairman of. The outcome was supposed to be a sealed structure which supported a self-sustaining ecosystem inside that would provide all the air, food, and water needed for human survival inside the structure. A world within a world. The two in Biosphere 2 refers to the fact that the original Biosphere, or Biosphere 1, is Earth itself. If you don't remember from science class, a biosphere lowercase b is just the narrow strata around the Earth's surface that supports life. As the project commenced, it got a lot of popular press, and hopes and expectations were high. Not only did the mega project have the potential to serve as a model for a world free from late 20th century concerns like pollution, biospheres could be launched into orbit, like in the old movie Silent Running, or even used to colonize other planets, the project's cheerleaders said. The Biosphere team even hoped biospheres could be made to order for any buyer who wanted one. Imagine if today's doomsday preppers could just order up their own personal biosphere. Space Biospheres Ventures celebrated the first mission launch with a dance party for 2,000 people, which, according to the New York Times, included Timothy Leary and Woody Harrelson as guests. The whole project was marketed with a very sci-fi vibe, with press photos showing the crew standing in front of the futuristic facilities, domes, and pyramids in matching red jumpsuits. And on September 26, 1991, eight crew members were sealed inside Biosphere 2. If only they'd known what they were really getting into. These eight members of the first Biosphere 2 mission, who will henceforth be referred to as Biospherians, committed to a two-year stay inside. The moment the crew entered the biosphere was televised and staged almost like a space launch, with the crew filing into the building's airlock in Star Trek-looking blue uniforms. The Biospherians were four men and four women, that's five Americans, two Brits, and a Belgian, 
there was a botanist, a marine biologist, a doctor, a guy who managed the wastewater recycling system and helped with research projects, and a few other people whose roles are honestly a little unclear. The three-acre-plus facility encompassed a 20,000-square-foot rainforest with a 25-foot waterfall, a 9,000-square-foot ocean with a coral reef, a nearly 5,000-square-foot mangrove wetland, a 14,000-square-foot savanna grassland, a 15,000-square-foot fog desert, and a 27,000-square-foot agricultural system, plus a human habitat featuring living spaces, research labs, and workshops. And extensive technical infrastructure called the Technosphere was constructed below ground. The above-ground biosphere structure is made of steel frames and tubing and high-performance glass, while the bottom was sealed with a steel liner beneath. The seals, windows, and doors to the outside world had to be as airtight as possible, though they weren't 100%. They did get the air leak rate down to less than 10%, however, a world record. Now, one of the biggest achievements of Biosphere 2's design and construction were the lungs. Outside the biosphere, on the west and south sides, sit two massive geodesic domes housing variable expansion chambers connected to the biosphere via tunnels. These chambers contain a giant metal plate attached to a rubber membrane, like a diaphragm, which allows pressure to be either retained or released from inside the biosphere. I'm sure you've figured it out, but this is a critical process because the alternating desert heat and cold outside the facility results in expansion and contraction that could lead to a buildup of air pressure beyond what the glass and steel frames of the structure could withstand. The biosphere also has a waste treatment system with biologically based functions like aerobic and anaerobic microorganisms, algal scrubbers in the ocean biome, and a soil bed reactor to pump air through the soil in their agricultural beds, allowing microbes to metabolically break down trace gases produced through the biological and technological processes in the biosphere, keeping those gases from building up to harmful levels. An energy center on-site but outside the biosphere provided electricity with natural gas and backup generators and hot and cold water. Dozens of air handlers in the technosphere control air temperature and humidity. As you can see, the facility's designers, engineers, and many scientific consultants had a monumental challenge to contend with not just because of the size and complexity of the various ecosystems and the technosphere, but because they also had to replicate artificially many of the processes and services that Mother Nature provides us here in Biosphere 1 for free. Think wind, rainfall systems, and waves and tides in the ocean. In many ways, it's incredible that the facility went from idea to reality in just seven years. According to an article by Mark Nelson, one of the original Biospherians, once inside, the crew spent about 25% of their time farming, 20% on research and maintenance, 19% writing reports, 12% cooking, 11% on biome management, and 9% on animal husbandry. They spent any remaining time doing media interviews, handling miscellaneous stuff, and resting. 
No one in the group had farming experience, so that was a big learning curve, and quickly hunger became their frequent companion. Yes, that's a bit of foreshadowing for you. The biosphere was home to an impressive 3,000 species of plants and animals, including 80 varieties of crops. Everything from rice and wheat to papayas and figs to herbs, kale, and peppers. So it was kind of like Noah's Ark, but worse, actually, because they had to pick and choose which species of plant and animal and coral and insect and everything to bring inside. So imagine figuring out everything to put inside and then actually gathering and moving all these thousands of specimens. So they had fish and a few animals for meat and milk and eggs, and they had to be really careful not to contaminate their environment, as that would, of course, bring a swift end to things. So they used ladybugs and certain varieties of cockroaches to control pests and process organic material, wood and wool for building materials, and no chemical cleaning products or pesticides, for example. So far, this does sound like a little utopia, a Garden of Eden filled with tasty delights. However, given that for whatever reason they hadn't recruited an agricultural expert to join the crew, they had a lot of trouble growing enough food to keep eight active adults fed. The group's doctor, Roy Walford, who'd previously studied high-density diets at UCLA's med school, tracked their caloric intake, which initially stood at about 1,800 calories a day, which the doctor dubbed healthy starvation. Walford was interested in the effects of diet on aging, specifically low-calorie diets for longevity. He believed he'd live to 120, but tragically, he passed away in 2004 at age 79. The group did improve their farming over time and were able to up their calories to about 2,200 a day for a while, but they were basically hungry all the time and lost a lot of weight. Mark Nelson, in that article I mentioned, said he lost 25 pounds and was sometimes so hungry that he would eat peanuts with the shells on just to get something more in his stomach. He also claims they ate so many sweet potatoes every day that their complexion started going orange from the beta carotene. I'm not sure if that's true, but they definitely ate an alarming amount of sweet potatoes. But life inside the biosphere wasn't all sunshine and sweet potatoes. Just a few weeks after the biosphere was sealed, the crew encountered one of their first major mishaps. Biospherian Jane Pointer cut off the tip of her finger in a threshing machine. The doctor on their crew patched her up, but ultimately it was decided that she would have to leave the biosphere through the airlock, go to the hospital for surgery on the finger, and come straight back without eating anything outside the biosphere, and that this would adequately preserve the integrity of the experiment. The brief trip outside of the biosphere went as planned, but it was later revealed that when she returned, she had been given a duffel bag with some outside supplies by a staff member. Once this was revealed, it became a scandal in the media, as it was perceived as misleading, and more or less like cheating. This reaction from the media was a sign of things to come. In the meantime, Biosphere 2's leadership had opened a visitor center, and busloads of tourists came to stare at the emaciated Biospherians through the glass. 
even famed anthropologist Jane Goodall came to visit and observed them like captive primates, recalls biospherian Linda Lee. After several months, some of their crops had failed or were producing less and slower due to shorter daylight hours and interloper pests like ants and invasive cockroaches that had found their way inside. But more alarmingly, it was detected that CO2 levels were climbing and oxygen levels were getting low, eventually to the point that it posed a danger to the biospherians who were becoming short of breath and lethargic. The crew also began experiencing negative social effects. Infighting began to break out among the group, and ultimately they broke into two factions. Ostensibly, they disagreed over whether to supplement the biosphere with outside food and oxygen to keep them going so they could complete their work inside, or if the priority should be the purity of the experiment as in keeping the biosphere sealed, no matter how bad it got. Things didn't devolve into outright violence, but cups were thrown and one biospherian recalls being spat on. The environment became one of coldness and hostility, where the two factions just couldn't stand each other. Some of the biospherians later said, and this makes complete sense to me, that their interpersonal problems were probably mostly down to the fact that they were half-starving and not getting enough oxygen. Not to mention being isolated with seven other people that you're bound to get sick of. Imagine two years of COVID lockdown but with no internet. Oh, and it takes weeks to grow enough coffee beans to make just a single cup. I think we'd all be grouchy. But this psychological pattern of breaking into factions and experiencing exaggerated group dynamics does seem to fit with other small groups in isolation, which have been looked at previously with situations like polar research stations. But while relationships inside the biosphere devolved, so did the relationships of those outside, Management and leadership argued over differing visions for how to best manage the project, and a science advisory committee, which was brought on to advise the team on how to best leverage scientific research opportunities, resulted in infighting and power plays. John Allen became concerned over losing control of the project, and eventually even the old friends and co-founders Ed Bass and John Allen turned on one another. They didn't have the excuse of being hangry and oxygen-deprived, so I guess their conflict must have come down to good old egos, control, and money. In another blow to Biosphere 2's public image, it was reported that Space Biosphere's ventures had tried to mitigate the oxygen problem by adding a CO2 scrubber without disclosing it. Unfortunately, this led to some terrible press and a loss of scientific credibility which I think is wildly unfair given that the biospherian's health was in jeopardy from the low oxygen. The only takeaway from the situation should have been that this was a problem to be learned from and hopefully improved in the future or in the next prototype. In this case, the critical discovery was made that their soil was too rich in organic matter, leading to an overgrowth of oxygen-consuming bacteria and that the excess carbon dioxide had chemically bonded with unsealed concrete inside the structure. 
John Adams, Biosphere 2's current deputy director, told Scientific American that it was a light bulb moment. They could trace molecule by molecule where carbon was going and where it was being stored in ways that they couldn't outside in the real world. Another theory was that because the La Nina weather pattern that year resulted in cloudier conditions, photosynthesis was lower, contributing to the oxygen decline as well as crop failures. In any event, it turned out that the CO2 scrubber didn't do much to correct course, and management finally decided to start pumping some extra oxygen into the facility to rescue the biospherians. When the oxygen came flowing in, the crew started racing around and laughing maniacally. One biospherian later said that all the negativity and ill will that had been dogging them evaporated once they started breathing easy. But the decision not to be transparent about problems and fixes was undoubtedly a big mistake by management, and combined with the duffel bag snafu, kicked off a barrage of negativity toward the project that it never really recovered from. Still, the Biospherians completed their entire two years inside, along with dozens of research experiments and massive amounts of data collection. I, for one, see the mission as a huge success. Not a utopia, no, but impressive nonetheless. Some people insist on arguing that because the facility didn't remain completely sealed the entire time, it was an abject failure and nothing can be learned. I just can't see it that way when I look at all the incredible things they did accomplish. And I'm not usually a glass half full kind of girl, but in this case, I think the positives far outweigh the negatives. For the six months following the end of Mission 1, Biosphere 2 continued to operate as a research facility with scientists coming and going through airlock doors and upgrades being made to the facility, including sealing that concrete that had caused such a problem with carbon dioxide uptake. Then, in March 1994, seven new Biospherians again entered the airlock, were sealed inside, and Mission 2 commenced. Mission 2 was set to last 10 months this time, and things were off to a great start. Sadly, on the outside, the infighting and power struggles that had plagued the management team and their partners hadn't been resolved, and things were getting ugly. Ed Bass was under pressure by financial partners to turn a profit. Enter stage left, Steve Bannon. Yes, that Steve Bannon. Of all the things I know about Steve Bannon and wish I didn't, this biosphere connection has never once been on my radar, until now. Before he became a Dementor, Steve Bannon was an investment banker who specialized in takeovers. And now that I know that, it totally tracks, but in 1993, Space Biosphere's Ventures was losing money fast, to the tune of 16 to $20 million that year alone. Ed Bass brought Steve Bannon in to write the ship, which he attempted to do by firing John Allen and the rest of Biosphere 2's leadership. In April 1994, Bannon's team of bankers and federal marshals showed up at the biosphere and booted out John Allen and other leadership and employees, served restraining orders, and barred them from the premises, changing locks and security codes. 
The ousted team lost all access to Biosphere 2's data and research, much of which seems to have been destroyed or disappeared in the takeover. Bannon became the acting CEO of Biosphere 2, and the focus went from science to making money as a tourist attraction. Needless to say, this takeover was heartbreaking for many of the Biospherians and others who worked there. Just three days after the takeover, about a month after the start of Mission 2, two original Biospherians from the first mission snuck onto the premises and opened doors, leaving the biosphere unsealed and broke some glass panels. After their arrest, they claimed that they'd felt compelled not to sabotage the mission, but to warn the Biospherians inside about the drastic change that had taken place in the takeover. They believed that the project being suddenly taken over by bankers who had no scientific or technical knowledge of how to properly run the facility left the crew inside in peril, and they didn't think the crew was aware of what was going on outside and the danger they were in. The mission in progress continued for a few more months, but after Space Biosphere's ventures dissolved, leaving an interim team hired by a financial partner trying to manage the mission, it was abruptly ended, which is all the more frustrating because the second mission seemed to be succeeding by implementing fixes to the problems encountered in the first mission. Their oxygen level was good, they were growing enough food, but we'll never find out just how far they could have gone. Bannon only stayed with Biosphere 2 for a couple of years, but his time there was marked by an abusive process civil lawsuit against him and the company, in which being a colossal asshole ended up costing Space Biosphere's ventures $600,000 in damages to plaintiffs. Biosphere 2 ended up then being leased to Columbia University, which used it for research, converting it into an open system in which they could manipulate carbon dioxide levels to better study climate change. The facility changed hands to a developer in 2007, and it briefly seemed in danger of being demolished to make way for housing, but the developer ultimately ended up first leasing and then donating it to the University of Arizona in 2011. The U of A still uses it for research, education, and public outreach. So Biosphere 2 was only used twice for its original intended purpose as a closed system experiment, first from 1991 to 1993, and the second time from March to September 1994. But today, the facility continues to be used for important research on climate change and more. The enclosed nature of the facility allows scientists to conduct experiments that would never be possible in the open environment at large, like dosing coral with probiotics to study bleaching or trying out bioengineered super corals that might resist rising heat and acidifying oceans. Plus, temperature, moisture, and atmosphere can all be manipulated for experiments in the various biomes. And today, the biosphere is even getting back to its roots, developing a space analog for the Moon and Mars, a hermetically sealed habitat to once again study self-sustaining systems. The biosphere remains open to the public and has hosted 3 million visitors since 1991. Biosphere 2 is often maligned as a colossal failure and waste of a ton of money. I don't see it that way. 
If anything, it was a wonderfully ambitious idea that kind of overshot the reality of their ability to be successful, but later use of the biosphere to conduct experiments and address narrower research questions are really useful. After all, we have to walk before we can run, right? People always say, shoot for the moon. If you miss, at least you'll be among the stars. Sure, it's cheesy, but I think it sums up this project really well. Okay, they had some problems. They couldn't survive two years without outside intervention. But given the vast scope and ambition of this project, isn't it impressive enough that they survived in there at all for any length of time? The point of any experiment isn't to be perfect the first time, but to learn something. And as any self-help guru can tell you, we all need to get a lot more comfortable with failure. Kind of my specialty. (laughs) Besides, whether we can live in a colony on the moon or Mars is just as much a social question as a science question. What good is technical know-how if social order breaks down and infighting results in factions and conflict? Mission Control can't get their shit together, and Steve Bannon executes a hostile takeover. I don't want to be on the moon when that happens. So why do we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because maybe this wasn't a purely scientific undertaking, and maybe the Biospherians were a bunch of hippie commune weirdos? There's so much more to learn from what the Biospherians themselves experienced in the conditions they were in. Maybe after a few more baby steps, we can get there someday. Maybe in the not-too-far future, scientists and engineers will succeed at creating a truly self-sufficient biosphere. Maybe it'll be on Mars. If you ever get a chance to visit Biosphere 2, I recommend it. I've been there. It's really cool, especially going inside those variable expansion chambers or lungs I told you about earlier. And of course, it's fun going through all the different biomes. They also offer a virtual tour on their website and app. What I do not recommend is watching Biodome. Yes, I'm talking about the 90s movie starring Polly Shore. If you don't know who that is, I wouldn't worry about it. Just move on with your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.